Hello and welcome to the Climate Change Weekly Podcast. This is episode 3, the 25th of August 2019. This week we're going to be talking about the lungs of the world being on fire as the Amazon rainforest burns, Extinction Rebellion's plan to shut down Heathrow Airport in London, and the topic of the week is nuclear power. This year has seen the highest number of wildfires in the Amazon basin since data began being collected in 2013. Over 72,800 fires have been recorded already this year, up 83% from the number for the whole of 2018. It's thought by many that they're started by people wanting to clear the land to raise cattle and grow crops. So obviously we need more forests on the planet, not less. And if we continue down this path, the Amazon is going to transition from a forest to open savannah. Now we touched on this in a previous episode, but the new Brazilian president has made a series of changes to undermine the protection of the forest. Uh, Unfortunately, he is a climate change denier, very much in favour of business and not protection of the environment. The French leader Emmanuel Macron made this a top priority for the G7 summit that's coming up over the weekend with his tweet which said, Our house is burning, literally, the Amazon rainforest, the lungs that produce 20% of the planet's oxygen, is on fire. This prompted France and Ireland to say that they will not ratify a huge trade deal with South American nations unless Brazil does more to fight fires in the Amazon. Let's talk about Extinction Rebellion. Now, if you haven't heard of it, it's a movement that was formed in the UK in around April of last year. And basically, what the movement has concluded is that the last 30 years of environmental action by Friends of the Earth, uh, the COP conferences, the Paris Agreement, Al Gore's films An Inconvenient Truth and its follow-up have all failed carbon emissions continue to increase. If you look at a graph of emissions, they're roughly in a straight line since about the year 2000, and they don't show any signs of slowing down, let alone uh, reducing. So what's the result of all this? So Extinction Rebellion say that they believe if we don't do something, we're on a path to social breakdown due to starvation. Um, So what do they mean by that? Well, Interestingly, one of the co-founders, Roger Hallam, was an organic farmer for about 20 years before he got involved in Extinction Rebellion, and he farmed in Wales, in the the UK. Now, Wales isn't a place that I would have thought of as being on the front line of climate change. In fact, quite the opposite. But what he's saying is, his experience and all the farmers around him's experience was that the climate is becoming so unpredictable now that it's becoming very difficult to grow food outdoors. Um, there's you know torrential rain there's cold snaps there's extreme droughts there's heat um, and you just don't know what you're going to get and each year the crop fails for a different reason so he's saying many people are giving up farming if that's happening in Wales then over the next few decades the whole of the world is going to be suffering from these kind of problems hot areas are going to get hotter there's going to be extended droughts extended heat waves as we've already seen this year Flooding is increasing. So I guess it is conceivable that we will face a time when we just can't actually grow enough food to feed the world. And that could lead to the social breakdown that they say is coming down the track. So, okay, what's their strategy? What are they going to do different that 
to the people that have been trying for the last 30 years to, to do something about this? Well, they've done a bunch of research in social science and they've decided that mass civil disobedience, peaceful civil disobedience, is the quickest way to affect change. And they do identify a need for mass arrests. So they've looked at examples like Gandhi and Martin Luther King and others and found that that really represents the quickest way to make massive social changes. So what, what do they do? Well, they've, they organise uh, disobedience where they blockade, say, roads in London, they glue themselves to train tracks and those kind of things, and they aim to get arrested in, in large numbers, so hundreds or even thousands of people being arrested. They want that to appear on the evening news. They want, they want people to see that, you know, just ordinary people that are willing to put themselves in harm's way to get themselves arrested because they, they really are so concerned about what's going on. And they liken this to a business where the workers go on strike. During the first few days the workers go on strike, the business production stops and things start to cost them money. And over time, the longer the workers stay on strike, the more the pressure builds for some sort of resolution. And so they're saying that's what we want to do. We want to blockade a whole area of a city. Um, We want to cause a lot of disruption and we want to keep doing that for day after day until we manage to get some concessions, um, which is what they managed to achieve last year when they did it in London. So they're building up to a period of disobedience over the next couple of months where one of the plans, which is very controversial, is to bring Heathrow Airport to a standstill by flying a bunch of drones around it. They realise this is illegal. They realise that people will get arrested. Possibly the penalties could be quite severe for this one. But if there's enough people willing to do it, could they possibly bring the airport to a standstill for a number of days, maybe even a number of weeks? You can just imagine the global headlines if that were possible and how much attention Extinction Rebellion could bring to this issue. So, I mean, it's, it's pretty radical, is it justified? Is it justified? I'd really be interested to hear your views. Please please get in touch, let me know. I'm in two minds on this. When I listen to what they say, I, I have to agree with them. I think the last 30 years have been a failure. Uh, we really haven't made any substantive change in our prospects of defeating climate change. The Paris Agreement, almost no countries are on track to actually meet their obligations. M- many are on track for three or four degrees of warming. So the idea of Paris is to keep the temperature uh, as close to 1.5 degrees. Um, almost no one's on track for that. And that's the biggest agreement made only f- less than four years ago. So, yes, it's true that all of that has failed. And if we are really staring down the barrel of mass starvation, uh, of social breakdown, then we really need to urgently do something about this crisis. And maybe blockading an airport doing those kind of things is really justified. We can't continue to fly and use internal combustion engine cars, generate our electricity through coal and oil and gas and all those things. We just can't keep doing those things. One of the things that Roger Hallen does is draw the analogy if you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you you've got cancer and that if you don't make radical changes in your lifestyle in the next few years, you're going to die. Essentially, we're in that situation regards the climate the scientists are saying that we've got a catastrophe coming down the track towards us and if we don't make radical changes really do something to cut emissions in the next decade 
the climate is going to reach a tipping point where it will be no longer possible to avoid these serious consequences. What Extinction Rebellion are looking for is for the UK to go carbon zero by 2025, bearing in mind the government have just recently set a target of 2050, which is currently thought to be pretty ambitious. So people are asking, Roger, Ham, you know, this is totally impossible. It's Why are you even putting this forward? You're not going to bring uh, the people along to support this. And he's, he's saying, well, you know, at the end of the day, the cancer keeps growing and you can pretend it's not there if you want, but it will kill us if we don't do something about it. And it is actually possible to uh, change. And if we realise that it's important enough, then we will make those changes. If there was a meteor coming at Earth and we needed to make some changes to avoid being all being destroyed by it, that would probably galvanise the minds into doing things that we thought were otherwise impossible. The problem is that this thing is slowly creeping up on us and not everybody even knows we've got cancer and if they do know we've got cancer, they don't believe it's going to kill us. So one of the objectives of this podcast is really to give as much information as I can to help people realise exactly what the science is saying. And I, I think also, just instinctively, if you look at the way we behave, we essentially treat our atmosphere as an open sewer. We've got factories and cars and planes belting out pollution. And, and I, I'm not just talking about the CO2, all the other nasty things that are coming out from diesel engines and aviation around the world, from massive coal-fired power stations, all the rest, just pumping this out. And, and we know that the atmosphere is actually rather small. You may have heard this analogy that if the world was shrunk down to the size of a, a standard desktop globe the atmosphere would be about as thick as a single coat of varnish on that globe. So it's actually very, very thin. And we've been just pumping stuff out into it for hundreds of years now. And that amount of stuff we're pumping out is accelerating every year and has done massively in the last 70 or 80 years. And we just can't expect to keep doing that without any consequences. I mean, I don't think you need to be a scientist to even realise that. You just have to look out of your window and... Certainly if you live in a city, breathe in the smog. None of this is sustainable. And I think in the hearts of hearts, we must, each of us, know that that's the case. You know, as with the, the, can the doctor telling you you've got cancer, you don't shoot the messenger. It's not the doctor's fault you've got cancer. He's looked at the imaging, the x-rays, etc., and he's concluded you've got cancer and you need to do something if you're going to avoid being killed by it. And we're in the same situation. The scientists are telling us that these things are going to happen, and it's not extinction rebellion's fault so they're the messenger but we we need to actually say well does their message actually make any sense they've looked at the science the same as i've looked at the science and and we've both concluded that really what we're doing is completely unsustainable and if we don't do something to fix it very soon it's going to be a disaster and we don't really see anything happening that is going to fix it i do believe it's not beyond us to make these changes but like an alcoholic that needs to recover, we, we need to admit, all of us admit, that we've got a problem that we need to fix. And then until we get to that point, we really don't stand any chance of fixing it. So this week, we're going to talk about nuclear power and what part, if any, it should play in replacing fossil fuels as a source of electricity generation. Now, by some coincidence, the excellent YouTube channel, Just Have a Think, covered this topic in their video published last Monday. And if you haven't seen that, I recommend go and have a watch. They made some points for pros and cons of nuclear power. 
and I'm not going to focus on the pros today because I think the cons are so overwhelming that really the pros don't come into it. And I hope to persuade you that really nuclear power should play no part in our future. So some of the points that were made in Just Ever Think were we don't have any good way to dispose of the waste. Typically, a nuclear power plant produces 20 tonnes of highly radioactive used fuel every year, and really there's no way to dispose of that safely. The half-lives of some of the radiation in there mean that that fuel will be dangerous to human health for millions of years. Options for dealing with it have involved finding, trying to find some mine shaft that they can drop it down, dropping it to the bottom of the ocean and leaving it there, obviously irradiating the, the marine environment. There really isn't a good way to store something for that period of time in a safe way. I actually visited the Sellafield nuclear reprocessing plant in the UK some years ago and we looked at this subject and at that time one of the ideas they were working on was dealing with liquid nuclear waste and the, the idea was to basically melt it together with glass to create these enormous glass, effectively torpedoes that they would then store in racks because they didn't really know what else to do with them. So disposal of the waste is obviously still an, an enormous problem and it's not something that we should be stockpiling anywhere in the world. Second problem is safety of the plants themselves. Now, there have been three very well-known nuclear accidents, which were Three Mile Island in 1978, Chernobyl in 1986, and most recently, Fukushima in 2011. There's actually another one to add to the list, which was Windscale in the UK, which exploded in 1957. Now, at the time, not much was said about that, because one of the things you need to remember with nuclear is its roots are in nuclear weapons manufacturer and the windscale plant was really a place to create plutonium for nuclear weapons and therefore much of what went on there was considered to be secret but what we do know that is that windscale when it exploded in 1957 was at the time the world's worst nuclear accident and it's probably one that you've never heard of because obviously the nuclear industry don't want to publicize these things if they can get away with it and they did get away with it largely in that case. There's actually been a huge number of other accidents and near accidents. We've had near meltdowns on a number of reactors, other accidents that um, maybe don't make the news or at least don't stick in people's memory. The basic conclusion is that we just can't do these things safely. And in fact, even if we could do them safely, the storing of the spent nuclear fuels is by its nature very difficult. At Sellafield, they have these enormous holding ponds which take the form of a giant swimming pool, uh, which is five metres deep, and at the bottom of the pool sits caskets full of spent uranium rods. Now, because the water is an excellent moderator, you can actually walk on a gantry above the pool because the level of radiation at the surface of the pool is quite low. And I've actually been in and seen this for myself. They have robotic cranes moving the casks around in the pool and they sit there for many months while the high levels of radiation start to decay. A couple of problems here. First of all, what happens if there's a huge earthquake? You know, what level of um, earthquake can these things be built with stand? That's the first thing. Second thing, most nuclear reactors are built on the coast for one reason or another and in a time of sea level rise, as discussed in last week's podcast, Many of these nuclear power plants are going to be inundated in the next 100 years. And the lives of them and the problems exist way longer than that. 
So we've got some real big problems there. There is really no way we can guarantee that if we built them in the future, we'd do a better job, that we we do them totally safely. And the only reason you'd actually take those kind of risks is if there were no other good option. In fact, there's, there's some really great options, as we probably well know. The next thing to consider is timescales. In terms of meeting our Paris obligations and really dealing with climate change, we've been told if we don't massively reduce carbon emissions by 2030, then we'll get to a critical tipping point where the changes become irreversible. So if nuclear were to be helpful in resolving this crisis, we'd need to bring online multiple reactors in the next 11 years. So how long does it take typically to get a nuclear reactor from planning stage to producing electricity? Well, let's have a look at a few examples. Sizewell B uh, in the UK was the last plant that was completed. Uh, It's a pressurised water reactor. The pre-construction safety case was submitted in August of 1981, and a public inquiry was then held between 82 and 85, and the bill took between 1987 and 1995, and the plant went online on the 14th of February 1995, 14 years after the planning process started. Okay, let's take another example, Hinkley Point C, which is one that's currently under construction in Somerset, England. Early enabling works were started in July 2008, site license granted in 2012, project approved in 2016, expected to come online in 2025, 17 years after the enabling works started. So that's a couple of examples from the UK. Let's see if anywhere else in the world is any better. Well, there's plants being built in Georgia, US. The Vogel plants, uh, units three and four, started the permitting process in 2005. Uh, Westinghouse Designs, Westinghouse has gone bankrupt in 2017. And currently the staff believe that the target date of being complete by November 2021 would be a challenge to achieve. 2005 to 2021. So I think we can see that the timescales involved in building nuclear plants mean that they just can't take any part in solving a problem that we have to solve in the next 11 years. The next aspect I wanted to talk about was the carbon emissions from nuclear power. Now, people will say that the reason nuclear power is good is because it doesn't emit carbon during electricity generation. Although that's basically true, there are huge emissions involved in building nuclear power plants and further emissions in mining and transporting uranium. So the Hinkley Point C reactor that's being built in the UK at the moment is, as we've already discussed, a a project that's been uh, underway for many years and, of course, just running a multi-year construction project has a big carbon footprint. But recently, the Hansen Group were proud of setting a new record and that was for the biggest continuous pour of concrete in history And during the construction just recently, they poured 9,000 cubic metres of concrete in a continuous pour that lasted five days. That concrete was reinforced by 5,000 tonnes of steel, which was built into a nest four metres high. Interestingly, concrete is the most widely used man-made material in existence. It's second only to water as the most consumed resource on the planet. The key ingredient of concrete is cement, And cement is a source of about 8% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions, according to the think tank Chatham House. Looking at Wikipedia, we see that the CO2 produced from the manufacture of structural concrete is estimated at 410 kilograms per cubic metre, 
So for that 9,000 cubic metre pour, production would have resulted in about 3.7 million kilograms of CO2 emissions. Then if we move to the steel, emissions are around 1,700 kilograms per tonne of steel, making another 8.5 million kilograms of CO2. And that's just for the base of the reactor that they've just built quite recently. The third aspect that I want to talk about, and what I feel is really the Achilles heel of nuclear power, is what happens to nuclear plants when they reach the end of their lives. And this is a big subject. There's a lot to talk about here. And again, the nuclear industry have done their best to cover up and hide what actually happens. So I think we'll pick up this topic again next week. Just a quick summary for this week. You can have a nuclear plant that can be producing power for as little as 20 years and then take 400 years to be totally cleaned up, returned back to a virgin site. That's all for this week. I hope you found it interesting. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone who you think might also be interested. Have a great week. And I'll be back next Monday with another episode of Climate Change Weekly. I know the change in me goes deeper day by day. Although you're by my side, I feel you slip away. I've been so restless, can't seem to concentrate. Back to me, that would be my fate. I need love.